Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Well, let's return to our first by verse study of the 15 chapters that uh, we know collectively as the Psalms of Ascent. This morning we're in the 125th Psalm. Now, like most of these Psalms of Ascent, we don't know exactly the context in which they were written or even the date of their writing, but the theme that we'll see this morning emerges in almost all of these Psalms. Remember, these Psalms would have been sung by pilgrims who were on their way to the holy city of Jerusalem to worship in the temple. And from any direction that they approached the city, north, south, east, or west, they would have had to look up because the city was situated on Mount Zion, which was surrounded and protected by other mountains. They knew, these travelers, if they could make it to Mount Zion, their journey would be over. They would finally be safe from robbers and wild animals. They knew if they could make it there, they would be safely home. And we've been saying throughout this study that every Christian, likewise, is on a journey to heaven. We are strangers and aliens here in this world, and we are traveling upward to our heavenly home. We, too, are surrounded by distractions, things that would vie for our affections that are owed only to Jesus. There are dangers around us. We have an enemy, and his name is Satan, and he controls this world system. In fact, we put our faith and trust in in Christ, and so, therefore, we are said to be in him. And if we are in him, we are steadfast and immovable and unchanging. And that's what Psalm 125 is all about. So let's read it now. Those who trust in the Lord are as Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forever. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest upon the land of the righteous, so that the righteous will not put forth their hands to do wrong. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. But as for those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead them away with the doers of iniquity. Peace be upon Israel. Now, this psalm begins with an unchanging promise. And that unchanging promise is this. Look at verse one again. Those who trust in the Lord are as Mount Zion which cannot be moved but abides forever. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and hearing of this, his word. Now we live in a world, as you know, that is anything but stable. In fact, this world is incredibly different than it was just say 20 or 25 years ago. I was amused to watch a video last week of some young teenagers attempting to use a rotary dial telephone. (laughs) And they finally just gave up. We know that even travel is different than it was before 9-11. There's so many more things that we have to think about. And even at church, we're never escaped from that idea of security. Who would have thought 30 years ago that uh, we would have been thinking about security in the local church? But I assure you, every pastor I know thinks about it daily. Even what we have known to be good and right and beautiful forever has been upset in recent years. We grew up believing that there were men and women, and now we're told there's at least seven different genders. 
We grew up knowing that marriage was holy and between a man and a woman, but even that is seemingly in question. And all of it collectively is enough to confuse and disorient even the strongest of Christians. And so we need to put our eyes on that which is unmovable and unchangeable. And to Jewish folks of the ancient world, that sentiment of something that was immovable and stable was expressed in terms of the mountain on which their holy city was built. Zion, they called it, or Mount Zion. And those words became synonymous with God's protection over them. In a topsy-turvy world, Mount Zion was a stable fortress of strength and a symbol of stability. But of course, it, it was not or should not have been any geographical formation, mountain or hill or plateau, that gave them their encouragement. It was the God who created that mountain, who condescended to meet with his people there, that they really sought for protection. And likewise, believers today don't look to any city, and we don't look to any government or any church for that matter. We look to Jesus, don't we? As our Zion, as our immovable one, as our unchangeable fortress. And throughout the scriptures, we see the Messiah referred to in terms of a stone or a rock, which is irresistible. Psalm 118 says, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief stone. And Jesus taught in the New Testament context that he was the fulfillment of that prophecy. Most people said he was worthless. He's just a son of a carpenter from up there in Galilee. So they set him aside as worthless. And that stone that the people rejected has now become the chief stone. The New Testament calls him the cornerstone. Construction in those days in that part of the world specifically was mostly out of rock that was carved out of quarries. And it was plumbed and squared and the most perfect stone was set as the cornerstone. And all the other walls and angles were plumbed and set according to that cornerstone. And that's the image that is evoked. Jesus is the cornerstone upon which all truth rises or falls. Not only is he the cornerstone, the scripture refers to him as the living stone. We have a phrase in our English vernacular that someone is dead as a stone. Well, Jesus is a stone, but he's not dead, is he? He's a living stone, and he's building the church. He's also called the rock of offense, a stumbling block to some. That is, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1 to the Greeks, the simple gospel of Christ crucified is foolishness. But to the Jews, it's a stumbling block. They keep tripping over it. He's also called the rock from whom the water of life issues forth. The great hymn writer wrote, On Christ a solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. We know that this world we live in has nothing to offer us upon which we can build our lives that is truly stable or unchanging. That's why Jesus told the parable of the two men who built houses. One man built his house upon the sand and one built his house upon the rock. And of course that rock is Jesus Christ. And when the storms of life come, and they surely will to saved and lost people alike, those who don't have a firm foundation will be swept away. But those who built their lives and their homes upon Jesus are immovable. Because we are connected to Jesus through saving faith. And when we are connected to Jesus through saving faith, the scripture says we are in Him. That is, we are engulfed, immersed, fully surrounded and protected eternally as the mountains ring Jerusalem, the holy city, and protect it. Well, the second thing we see 
is God's unfailing plan. Look at verse 3. It says, For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest upon the land of the righteous, so that the righteous will not put forth their hands to do wrong. Now, in the ancient world, the scepter, which was that rod that kings would hold in their hands, usually bejeweled, the scepter was symbolic and synonymous with authority and governmental power. Now, several times in her history, God's people, the Israelites, were captured and subjected to, subjected to wicked kings and kingdoms. Um, for example, the Egyptians enslaved them and forced them into hard labor. And then the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Persians, one by one, held the people captive. But God's promise here in Psalm 125 is that His plan is that all of those captivities were temporary in nature. And they are unlike the scepter that would ultimately rule and rest over the land, the scepter of righteousness, which would be wielded by none other than Jesus. We talk about the kingdom of God. We talk about it in terms of the already and the not yet. Jesus is already ruling and reigning in the hearts of his people. But there will come a day, we've seen many times here, that Jesus will rule over all. And Isaiah will be fulfilled when he said the government will be on his shoulders. He will be king of kings and lord of lords and rule and reign eternally. All the other kingdoms of the world are temporary, but the rule of Christ is eternal. Indeed, kings and kingdoms will all pass away, but there's something different about the name of Christ. He and His is an eternal kingdom. This, dear ones, is God's eternal plan of redemption, and it is unfolding exactly as He planned it. And yet, while we wait for His second coming, for His rule and reign to be consummated, we know that we're surrounded by our enemies. And so we cry out to God, asking Him to hear us and to bless us. This is the unending plea of every Christian and has been since the time of Christ. Look at verse 4. He says, Do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. This is a prayer to God from His children for help and protection and blessing. Now, even as we read that verse, we know, of course, that in and of ourselves, even the best Christian, there are none of us who are truly righteous, are we? Scripture says that we are sinners by nature and by choice. Yet, consistently, the Bible, as it does in this verse, divides all of humanity into two great categories. In the Psalms, those categories are often using words like the wicked and the righteous, the blessed and the just. In the New Testament, we, we see terms like the saved and the lost, children of God, children of the devil, friends of God or enemies of God. These are all different ways of expressing the same fundamental truth. That, that even though as humans, we categorize people in a myriad of different ways, God really only puts humanity in one or two groups. You're either His or you're not. You're in His kingdom or you're not. You're, you're saved or, or you're lost. And those of us who are saved, who have put our faith and trust in, in Christ, even as we are traveling this difficult and steep road to the heavenly city, even as it's coming into focus in the distance, we know that we can call out to God for help and mercy and protection. He is a very present help in time of trouble.
Really, when you think of life that way, as a pilgrim, remember those pilgrims would come from every direction, but as they got within a day's journey of Jerusalem, they could see that shadow of the mountains on the horizon. And as they got closer, they could see the outline of Mount Zion. As they got even closer, they could start to see the Temple Mount. Can you imagine their hearts beating faster and they walked a little faster the closer they got to the city? You know, I, I get to visit almost every week with some of our dear saints in this church who can see Mount Zion. They're almost there. We have at any one time half a dozen or more people who are on hospice care. They've been told there's nothing else that doctors can do, and so they send them home to die. And, and, and it's such a joy to me as I visit with those in their homes that they're not fretting. They're not full of anxiety and, and worry. They can see the heavenly city, and their heart beats with enthusiasm the closer they get. And may it be for all of us, because this world is not our home. But even in this world, he's promised to meet our needs and make our provision for the journey. When God sends us on a journey, he doesn't say good luck and send us out the door. He gives us everything that we need. Think about that 40 years his people wandered in the wilderness. He fed them with the manna from heaven. He provided water in the desert. He gave them godly leaders. He protected them from their enemies because they were his children. He was their God. And he does the same for us. He never promised an easy life. He promised that he would never leave us. And so our unending plea to him is for help, for blessing. But as you know, and as the scripture here indicates, heaven is not the destination for those who reject Christ. Their end is universal and eternal punishment. Universal punishment. Verse 5 says, but as for those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead them away with the doers of iniquity. Now here I think is a warning to Jewish people who thought that they were right with God just because they were associated with Mount Zion or with temple worship. It reminds me of what John the Baptist said to his generation. Remember those Jewish people he was preaching to? Many of them said, look, we are children of Abraham. We can trace our genealogy all the way back to Father Abraham. We don't need this message of repentance and faith, John. And John said, say not that you are children of Abraham because God is able to raise up children of Abraham from these rocks he pointed to. And in our context in 2019, I would say to you, say not that you're right with God because you're a member of a Baptist church. Say not that you're right with God because you teach Sunday school or Bible school. Say not that you're right with God even if you're on staff, say I'm right with God because I put my faith and trust in Christ alone. There is no other name given among men by where we must be saved. And here's a warning to his people. He's saying don't fall in with those that do iniquity. Remember, God's divided the world into the iniquitous and the righteous, but here's the thing about most of us. When we think about the iniquitous, or those children of wrath, we think of the worst people we know. We think of people who rob and rape and pillage and those on death row for murder. That's the image that is evoked. And yet, the Bible says that all are sinners and fall short of the glory of God. And 
the destiny of all of those who don't put their faith and trust of God is punishment and wrath. We've been studying the book of Hebrews for several months now, verse by verse on Wednesday evenings in this room. And last week we came to chapter 10. Chapter 10 is the climax of the great book of Hebrews, which was written, of course, to Jewish converts, those in the first century who had come out of Judaism and given at least lip service to the fact that they were putting their faith and trust in Christ. And yet their family, their friends were putting pressure on them to turn back from Christ and come back to the old covenant, come back to Judaism and sacrificial system. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, no, persevere, continue on, because he says, if you turn back, there's no other gospel for you. And all of Hebrews thematically is about the superiority of Christ and the new covenant over the old covenant. Christ is a superior prophet to any prophet of the Old Testament. He's even greater than Moses, the writer of Hebrews says. His is a greater priesthood than the Levitical priesthood of the Old Testament. His is a greater sacrifice. Those Old Testament sacrifices had to be repeated day after day, year after year, and his was the once for all sacrifice. So he's saying if you turn away from Christ, there's nothing left for you and you'll die in your sins. Verse 26 of Hebrews 10 says, For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice of sin, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of fire which will consume the adversaries. He's saying if you turn back and reject Christ after having a full understanding of the gospel, you know intellectually that Jesus left the glories of heaven as the second person of the Trinity and was born of a virgin and lived a perfect life and died a atoning sacrifice on the cross and rose again from the grave after three days and ascended back into heaven. If you know all those facts, to be true and will not bow your knee ultimately to the Lordship of Jesus, you proved that you were never born again. It's not that you lost your salvation. As John said, they went out from us because they were not of us. But he says there remains no sacrifice for sins. In other words, if you reject Jesus as your sacrifice, there's nothing else better than Jesus. And so therefore you'll be lost forever. What a terrifying thought. He goes on to say, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer judgment, punishment, do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? And so that's why I say often here that one of the most dangerous places in the world for you to be is not in the Middle East where Americans are hated. It's not even in communist China. One of the most dangerous places you can be today if you're not saved is right in this room. In fact, if you can come week after week, go to Sunday school, go to Bible study, hear the true gospel week after week, year after week and say, that's not for me and turn away. The Bible says you are deserving of the severest punishment Imaginable. He says, because you've trampled underfoot, you've just walked all over the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he concludes the thought with this verse. He says, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hand of the living God. To find yourself the enemy of God is the worst possible scenario. Because if you're the enemy of God, you will lose. 
But the wonderful good news is you don't have to fall into the hands of a living God for punishment. The good news is that you can rest in the arms of God, your Father, through faith in Christ. And so the psalmist concludes the 125th Psalm, not with a warning of judgment, but with a benediction of praise. A simple sentence, look what he says. Peace be upon Israel. And that word peace is one of the most beautiful in the English language. It's even more beautiful in Hebrew. It's the word shalom. The holy city, Jerusalem, means city of peace. And what an irony that is, because that city has been marked by anything but peace. But one day it will be known as the city of peace, because that's where Jesus will ultimately come to rule and reign and set up his kingdom. When the Bible talks about peace, he does so from two perspectives. First, the Bible talks about a cessation of hostilities. That's what we think about when we think about the end of World War II and that sailor kissing that nurse. That's peace from warfare. It's a ceasing of hostilities. Well, that means that we have been at a war with God, hasn't it? And that's the truth. That's how the Bible describes lost human beings as being at war with God before they're saved. You say, well, that's not me. You know, I, I, I have warm feelings towards Jesus, even though I don't call myself a Christian. I'm not anti-God. Yes, you are. The Bible says if you're not for Him, you're against Him. You are at war with Him. That's how He views you. And He wants there to be peace between heaven and, and you. But the only way there can be peace is if you make an unconditional, total surrender of your life to Him. That's what it means to be saved. To be saved is not to turn over a new leaf. To be saved is not to try harder, harder to be moral. To be saved is to come to Him with empty hands and outturned pockets and totally surrender to Jesus. And then if you'll do that, if you'll bow your knee to Him, He will give you peace with God. You are in Christ. Christ has a perfect relationship with the Father and therefore you now have access to the Father. But He will also give you a different kind of peace. He will give you peace in your heart. And that's generally what we think about when we say I'm, I'm at peace. I have a peaceful feeling or a peaceful disposition. And this is what Paul talked about in Philippians chapter 4. When he said to that church, rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. Let your moderation be known to all men for the Lord is near. Isn't he? He's present with us. He's not far away. And then he says this, be anxious for nothing. But with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving... Let your requests be made known to God. And here's his promise, if we'll do that. The peace of God, which passes human comprehension, will stand guard over your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. That's the kind of peace that the world doesn't understand. It's the peace that allows us to live in a world where we are outnumbered and surrounded with the enemies of God and sleep well. It's the kind of peace that your neighbors are going to have questions about. Christians are not immune from the storms of life. We get sick. Our parents die. We get laid off just like they do. But when those storms of life come and we remain steadfast and unwavering and immovable, they're going to look over the fence and say, what's different? 
In fact, they may approach you and ask you what's different. That's why the scripture says we must be ready to give an answer to those who wonder about the hope that is within you. This peace that passes human comprehension. But, but we must hasten to say that this is an undeserved peace. One that we have not earned, but rather was purchased by the, the blood of Jesus. It, it's not through effort. It's not through making up for past mistakes that this peace is purchased. It is a gift of God, granted by grace alone. You see, when the scripture describes unbelievers, it uses the harshest of terms. The scripture says that before we were saved, we were dead in sins. That's a pretty tough prognosis, isn't it? A dead person has, has no hope. We were helpless, hopeless, totally unable to respond. It's not that we were sick or just that we were bent. We were broken and shattered and, and dead. Scripture says we were spiritually blind. We had no discernment on spiritual things. It was a foreign language to us and we couldn't see. But, but some people think, no, I, I see clearly. In fact, the Pharisees of Jesus' day thought that they had 20-20 spiritual vision. So much so that they said, everybody get behind us. We'll lead the way spiritually. And Jesus called the Pharisees blind leaders of the blind. And he says, what happens when blind people have a blind guide? They all end up in the ditch. And Israel had ended up in the ditch spiritually. And Jesus calls them to repentance and to faith just as he does today. See, we were dead, blind, rebels, stubborn unwilling to believe, disobedient, and haters of God. You say, wait a second, Pastor, I don't hate God. I just, I just enjoy doing things my way. Well, you hate God because the God of the Bible calls people to unconditional surrender. Now, that's the bad news. It's bad news to be called dead, blind, rebel, stubborn, disobedient, hater of God. But there's some good news. I think the most important two words in all the Bible we find in Ephesians chapter 2. Having described us in that way, Paul writes, but God. In fact, I think those words are so important, I'm going to have you turn there and read them with me. Let's, let's look to Ephesians chapter 2. I've been the pastor here 14 years and we've studied every verse in Ephesians twice through. And if you'll stay another 10 years, we'll do it again. Because it is so important that we understand not only the blessings that are ours by virtue of being in Christ, but it's important to remember where we came from and the high cost of our sin and the great love wherewith he loved us. And this is what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter two. And he's writing to Christians and he says, and you were dead. That's past tense. In times past, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. That says, you were in the wrong kingdom. You were working for the devil. Among them, verse 3, we too all formerly lived in the lust of flesh. It wasn't just you, it was all people before they were saved. And here's how we live. We indulge the desires of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature the children of wrath. That is, that's how God thought of us as those 
who were destined for wrath, even as the rest. It wasn't just the, the most wicked people on the planet that were children of wrath. It was every person who rebelled against God in any way. And then we come to verse 4. Can, can we say those two words together? But God. Underline it big. Highlight it. Circle it. Do whatever you have to do. That's the, the most important phrase, I think, in the Bible. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. Now, you will search in vain to find any verb, noun, participle, pronoun, otherwise, that makes any reference to what we did to make ourselves alive. Just try to do that. You'll search in vain because it's all about God. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. Don't even congratulate yourself on faith because that's a gift from God. Not as a result of works so that no one may boast. And so if you fancy yourself immovable and unshakable in and of yourself in this world, friend, you're not. One day there's going to come a storm and it's going to sweep you away right down to the foundation. And if your life, your house, and your family is not built upon Jesus Christ, you're going to be lost forever. But if you will submit to the Lordship of Jesus, if you will follow him moment by moment and day by day, when, when those storms come, and they surely will, when the clouds have passed and the winds have ceased, you're going to find yourself steadfast and immovable and unshakable like Mount Zion in the eyes of a Jewish traveler you will be unmovable let's thank the Lord for that Heavenly Father Lord we thank you for your word and Father we are uh, it seems like to me being put through the ringer as believers everything that we have known to be true and good and right and beautiful forever has been turned upside down. And Father, if we're not looking to Jesus, we'll become disoriented and lost. Father, if we'll set our eyes on Jesus, on that mountain which does not move, and we'll continue on that journey, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God. So Father, I thank you for those ones I mentioned earlier who are almost there. Encourage their heart to keep going to the finish line. For, for others here, they're just starting their journey like little Lila Grace, Lord. Give her that same endurance because we know surely as the sun rises that she's gonna face the same kind of difficulties that all of us do in this life and do every day. But Father, we have fixed our hope on Jesus, the rock of our salvation, the cornerstone upon which the church is built the living stone, the one through whom the water of living life issues forth. So Father, your promise is 
that you'll never abandon us in our time of need. You promise us that even on the journey, you'll give us resources and you'll protect us. And so, Father, that is our hope. That's our belief. That's what we're putting our trust in for all of eternity. And Lord, I pray if there be even one soul here today who has never done that, who is depending upon their own goodness or works or ingenuity or even their genetics, Lord, would you cause them to despair of any of that and recognize it as worthless? And then in their moment of desperation, would you open their blind eyes, breathe life into their spirit by your spirit and call them out of darkness into light. Transfer their citizenship out of the kingdom of Satan into the kingdom of your dear son. Father, would you do that today for your own glory? And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org. Thank you.